Listener Production. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is The Science Briefing. And it's the start of the month, so you know what that means. Three science stories from last month that you might have missed or that we didn't get to cover, but we definitely want to give them a mention. Ellen Fidian, Cosmos Magazine journalist, you're here today to walk us through these. I sure am. Perfect. So, from my understanding, we've got mysterious sounds in the stratosphere. We're also going to talk about when humans started kissing. But before we get there, Ellen, I believe we've learned something new about the origins of the butterfly. We have, yes. So butterflies, even though they're like one of the best studied insects in the world, there's still a lot that we don't know about them because they're really, really delicate. So it's very, very hard for them to fossilize. Mm. So without those fossils, there are all of these questions that kind of go unanswered about where they possibly have come from. Yeah, wow. But this huge international team of researchers have just put together this massive butterfly tree of life. And through that, they figured out the butterflies first evolved probably in North America. Okay. So previously, we weren't even sure where butterflies started. We think they probably evolved back when there were two big continents. There was Laurasia in the north and Gondwana in the south. Mm -hmm. We weren't sure which of those two butterflies evolved on. So this at least cracks the case kind of wide open. The way they did this is they looked at the genetic diversity of different modern butterfly species, as well as looking at 11 very, very rare butterfly fossils to kind of cross-check stuff. Okay. When we don't have fossils, genetic diversity is often a really good indicator of the age of any kind of class of animals. Okay. Because if they're all pretty similar, that means they haven't spent very much time evolving. Sure. But if they're all like genetically very different from each other, that means that their genes have mutated a lot. And so that's probably taken place over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. So these researchers constructed this giant butterfly family tree based on the genetics of more than 2,300 species. So that covers 92% of all of the genuses, genera of butterflies that we know about. Now, Ellen, that sounds significant. I don't want to be nitpicky, but what about the other 8%? Too hard. (laughs) Sure. It's a massive paper, huge international team of researchers. They went through 28 butterfly archive collections around the world. So this is just kind of what they got back from all of that. Okay, well, it is incredible. I don't want to take away from that. It's massive. It's huge. So what does this comprehensive butterfly family tree tell us exactly? So the story they've constructed from it is that about 100 million years ago, these butterflies started flying during the daytime and feeding on flowers. So that's when they kind of split off from their goth moth cousins in Central (laughs) and Western North America. And that's when they started getting more colourful and exciting as well. And then pretty quickly, actually, they travelled around the world. So they got to Australia quite quickly, Asia, all of those sorts of places, which is pretty impressive given how like small and delicate they are. Sure. But there are still some places that they struggled to get to, like Europe. So it took them about 45 million years to populate Europe. And even today, they don't have the same kind of genetic diversity that they do elsewhere in the world because they're there much more recently. Oh, I'm sorry, Europe. That's disappointing. (laughs) Isn't that disappointing? Yeah. Who doesn't want more different butterfly species? I mean, you know, give them another 45 million years and it will be be beautiful and butterfly-y in Europe. Yeah, we'll just have to wait a bit longer. So next, sounds of the stratosphere. I can only guess what this means, Ellen. 
yeah, there's noise a few dozen kilometers above the planet. Um, so I'm going to start this one with a bit of background because I really love the way the scientists figured this out. Mm-hmm. It was this US team of researchers and they've been making these balloons with supplies that they mostly bought from a hardware store. The whole thing only cost them about $50 per balloon. What? Can we make these balloons at home? Like, let's just pop down to Bunnings, spend 50 bucks on supplies and make giant space balloons? Not quite. Um, Although, like, you could make something very similar. I would not advise flying it because, like, you've got to get approvals and stuff for that. Oh, yeah. But these balloons, they're about six, seven metres in diameter. Oh, like proper giant space balloons. Yeah, yeah, huge. (laughs) And they're solar powered. So one of the scientists did actually say that you could just build it on a basketball court because that's the sort of thing you'd have size to do. Wow. So after they've put these balloons together, they put charcoal dust on the inside, which makes them really dark. And then when the sun shines on the balloons, the air inside heats up and becomes buoyant. That is so clever. Yeah, it's rad, right? And so that makes them like basically buoyant enough to to rise 20 kilometers into the sky. So they sent these balloons up into the stratosphere to record the sound up there. So Ellen, that is really, really far why are they making giant balloons to send them off into the stratosphere? Like losing your balloon and seeing it floating away into the sky is every child's worst nightmare. Like, how do they actually record the sound up there? I bet the kids would be less miserable about them if they had GPS trackers on the balloons so they could, like, figure out where they came down again. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so they've been attaching microphones to these balloons to record sounds from the stratosphere because it's a really, really good place to hear sound. So it's about 10 to 50 kilometres above the Earth's surface. There are very few planes and there's not that much atmospheric turbulence. Yeah. So it's possible to pick up a whole bunch of other sounds from Earth, like colliding ocean waves and thunder, wind turbines. You can hear them from there and like explosions and stuff as well. Cool. So they picked up on all of those things they were expecting to hear. They have also recorded some sounds up there that they haven't been able to identify yet. Ellen, is it aliens? Probably not. Almost definitely not, right? (laughs) There are these mysterious infrasound signals that occur a few times per hour on some of these balloon flights, and they have not yet figured out the source. Because it's infrasound, that means it's too low frequency for people to hear. Mm -hmm. The way they've picked them up is these things called microbarometers, which measure air pressure. So sound waves, as I'm sure you know, Sophie, change (laughs) the air pressure. So they make tiny, tiny compressions. And so microbarometers pick up these tiny pressure changes so they can pick up really, really low sounds. They're actually mostly used to listen for things like volcanoes happening far away. Okay, so that is very cool. I love it. But now we're going to flip and we're going to end everything on a bit of a lighter note. I hear there has been some developments in our understanding of when humans first started kissing, Ellen. Yeah, there has. So we don't know exactly when humans first started kissing, but until recently, the earliest like well-known record of a romantic kiss came mm-hmm. from India in around 1500 BCE. Okay. So across like pretty much every culture in the world, there's like parental kissing, like mums kissing babies, that sort of thing. But romantic kissing specifically doesn't appear in every single culture. So it's, it's a little bit unusual. 
So now a team of scientists have pointed out several records of romantic kissing from Mesopotamia, which is where modern Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Syria and Turkey is. And these records go back to 2500 BCE, so four and a half thousand years ago. Yeah, wow. So what sorts of records of the first kisses are we talking about? What forms do these records take? So back in Mesopotamia, people wrote in cuneiform, which is this yep. ancient script on clay tablets. And we know a lot about Mesopotamia because clay is super durable. So there are thousands of these tablets that have survived. And a bunch of them contain really clear examples of kissing, mostly happening between married couples. Okay. There were two records that the researchers found really interesting. One of them, quote, describes how a married woman was almost led astray by a kiss from another man. Um, and the other describes an unmarried woman swearing to avoid kissing and having sexual relations with a specific man. Oh. So that basically suggests that kissing was frowned upon when not done between married couples. Sure. But these scientists weren't just interested in ancient kissing. They also wanted to know what it had to do with disease transmission. Oh, fun! <laughs> So they were at least partially writing this paper in response to another piece of research that was published last year that was looking at the origins of herpes. Oh, okay, sure. And the researchers in that paper kind of offhandedly said, ah, well, kissing started in 1500 BCE in India, and so that's kind of linked to this herpes thing. Yeah. So these researchers in, like, the paper published a couple of weeks ago, they really refute that very strongly. So they point out that there are a couple of instances of, like, herpes-like viruses in Mesopotamia as well. So basically, they think that kissing and viruses have been like pretty consistently linked to each other over time. There's not like one starting event when kissing happened and then herpes followed straight away. Well, there you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Ellen. Ellen Fidian is a science journalist for Cosmos magazine. You can read more of Ellen's reporting by heading to cosmosmagazine.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe. You can download the Listener app to listen for free. The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Bonnie Lavelle. Mixing by Dave Stein. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time. Listener.